BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. I have a winning temperament. I know how to win. She does not have Secretary to win. Wait. Secretary Clinton. Woo. Okay. I understand the tax laws better than almost anyone, which is why I am one who can truly fix them. I understand it. I get it. Here's my question. What kind of genius loses a billion dollars in a single year? I've got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. This is disgraceful. It is intolerable. And it doesn't matter what party you belong to. Democrat, Republican, Independent, no woman deserves to be treated this way. None of us deserves this kind of abuse. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Well, talk about an October surprise. In the last week, we've heard Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump brag about grabbing women by the genitals and kissing them without permission. Then we've heard him insist that he's never done any of that. And then, these past couple of days, we, the New York Times, have met and reported on women who say he's done exactly that to them. In turn, Donald Trump is threatening the New York Times with a lawsuit. Our lawyer has responded. At the same time, we've watched top Republican figures turn completely away from their candidate in a way that has no historical precedent, and then come running back to him. On the other side, we've seen a Democratic candidate who values her privacy to a fault have hundreds of her campaign emails become public by WikiLeaks, which perhaps obtained them through hacking by the Russians. All of this in a single week. So let's get right into it. I'm joined in the studio by my colleague, Megan Tui. The two of us have been reporting together on Donald Trump and his relationship with women for about a year. Hey, Megan. Hey, Michael. So, Megan, let's start at the beginning. Last week, as we now all know, this video is released of Donald Trump bragging that he can just walk up to a woman if he wants to and grab them by the genitals. And the next day at the second presidential debate, he dismisses those comments as locker room banter. I think the quote was, just talk. It's just talk. A woman in Manhattan is watching that debate, and she hears him say that, and she's deeply upset. She goes to bed, and the next morning she writes a letter to the New York Times. What's the story she's starting to tell there? So the woman you're talking about is uh, Jessica Leeds, who did contact us after the debate in which Trump was asked directly, you've said that you kiss women and that you grab them you know, without consent. Have you, in fact, done that? And he blatantly said, no, no, I don't. And Jessica Leeds was writing us to say, actually, in my experience, he does. And here's my story. I sat next to him on a plane a little over three decades ago, but I have vivid recollections of it. So here's how Jessica Leeds described what happened to her. Somehow or another, the armrest in the seat disappeared. And it was a real shock when all of a sudden his hands were all over me. He started encroaching on my space. 
and I hesitate to use this expression, but I'm going to, and that is he was like an octopus. It was like he had six arms. He was all over the place. If he had stuck with the upper part of the body, I might not have gotten that upset, but it's when he started putting his hand up my skirt, and that was it. That was it. I was out of there. What's kind of remarkable is that Jessica Leeds is watching the debate at home with her friend and neighbor, a woman named Linda Ross, who I interviewed. The two of them are of similar age. They grew up in the same era. And they listen as Donald Trump denies that he's ever acted on the things he's said in that video. Have you ever and done those women things? have respect for me. And I will tell you, no, I have not. After hearing that, Linda turns to Jessica on the couch in front of the television and the two of them just look at each other and have a moment. And as Linda told us, she said to Jessica, he just flat out lied. Because in their minds, Jessica Leeds experience proved that what Donald Trump had just told Anderson Cooper was wrong. I didn't particularly want to watch the debates, but when Anderson Cooper asked him, had he ever molested anybody? He said no. He lies through his teeth. I don't really think he, in his brain, I think he's got it separated. Jessica is not the only woman who contacted the Times. We heard from a woman named Rachel Crooks. She was a 22-year-old receptionist at a company inside Trump Tower in 2005 when she met Donald Trump. And according to her, Mr. Trump began to kiss her cheeks and then kissed her on the mouth. Megan, when did each woman decide to start talking about this in their lives? Well, in the case of Jessica Leeds, she, by her own account, started talking to people about this about a year and a half ago when Trump was emerging as a presidential candidate and obviously thrust into the spotlight, undergoing more public scrutiny and being examined not just as a businessman, but is this somebody who's sort of fit to lead the country? And I think that that, you know, for her, that was a time at which she started to feel it necessary to to share this uh, encounter that she had had with him uh, years before. In the case of Rachel Crooks, you know, she's a 33-year-old woman who encountered Donald Trump when she was working as a receptionist at a company in Trump Tower. And uh, she says that she bumped into Donald Trump outside an elevator in the building. And, you know, that she says that she introduced herself and uh, that they shook hands and he went in to kiss, you know, kiss her on the cheek and then kissed her directly on the mouth. And as she tells it, she was so upset she went back you know, once he stepped into the elevator and she went back into her office, she immediately called her sister, you know, said I was very shaken up and told her sister how what had happened and how upset she was. You know, I talked to her sister who confirmed that, said, yes, I, you know, I recall receiving this phone call and she was very rattled. And we talked about this and I said, are you sure that it wasn't a mistake that he was just trying to kiss you on the cheek and that, you know, Rachel had said, no, this was a direct kiss on the mouth. You know, she also, um, by her own account, had gone home that night after work and told her boyfriend, who she was living with at the time, what had happened. And, you know, I also spoke to him and he confirmed, yes, she came home. And I said, how was your day? And, you know, she paused for a second and then just started crying hysterically. And the reason, of course, why we talk to such people, a boyfriend, a sister, is that it broadens the circle of information in their lives. It sort of gives us the knowledge that they told that story to more than one person, in this case, to two people. In the case of Jessica Leeds, within the last year and a half, 
she's told at least four people that we talked to. She says she's also told more people than that. That's right. It's just sort of the 101 of due diligence. Uh, You know, we are going to make sure that, okay, you say that this happened. You say this happened in 2005. You say this happened 30 years ago. Well, what are all the sort of methods we can employ here to check out your story? And if you have shared your story with other people, then you can be sure that we want to talk to those people and confirm uh, what you're telling us. And so, you know, that's a big part of due diligence. And then obviously going to Trump. You know, we would never publish these allegations about him without contacting him and saying, Mr. Trump, we've talked to these women. Um, you know, we've talked to some of the people connected to them. These are the stories they're telling. And, and, and what do you have to say about that? What's your response? And sometimes when, when we do this, we get a response from a spokesperson. They send us a statement. And a couple of nights ago, you heard directly from Mr. Trump when you asked questions in preparation for this story. And what was that conversation like? So it actually took me by surprise. I didn't, the Trump campaign didn't say, oh, uh, yes, Mr. Trump is prepared to talk to you and we'll be calling in two hours. Basically, I got a phone call from the campaign saying, hold, please, you know, Donald Trump is coming on the line. And so- um, Lucky you're not like out in the rain. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, we were, um, yeah, just sort of still knee deep in the reporting process and writing process at that point. So it was, uh, you know, I was grateful. I was I was happy to hear that he was going to come on and answer these questions directly. And he very quickly started uh, sort of issuing categoric denials and became increasingly agitated as I pressed forward with additional questions, spelling out more of the details of the allegations and making sure that I was continuing to do my due diligence even as he became increasingly agitated and ultimately started yelling at me and saying that the New York Times was fabricating these allegations to make him look bad and that he was going to sue us if we reported them. And then ultimately just calling me a disgusting human being. Are you able to actually ask questions in the middle of that kind of raised voiced dialogue? I I wasn't with you, so I, I wasn't able to hear the conversation. Right. So absolutely. I mean, it was it's it's not it's not the easiest circumstances under which you're able to sort of press forward with the your due diligence, which is making sure you ask all the necessary questions and you give them a chance to respond to everything that you're going to put in your story. You know, the last thing we want is to publish something where he can say, well, you didn't tell me that that was going to be in the story. I didn't get a chance to respond. So I just, you know, I was determined to push forward with those questions and then ultimately say, after we'd gone through some of the specific allegations that we were bringing up in the story, to, to double back to the question of, okay, well, you yourself were recorded on tape saying that you have grabbed women and kissed women without their consent. Have you ever done that? Are there any circumstances in which you've done that? And he said, no, I don't do that. One of the themes in both of the stories we wrote were power dynamics. And you had a conversation with Rachel Crooks. What did she tell us and what do we end up explaining in our story about the challenge of something like that, as she recalled it, happening with... Donald Trump in a building called Trump Tower, working for a company that had a business relationship with the Trump company. One of the things that's so interesting about this Trump story as it unfolds, these, first of all, the recording, (laughs) and then also the growing number of women who are sharing stories in which they say they, you know, that actually they experienced that behavior from him 
uh, firsthand. You know, I think what's interesting is that it's created this broader conversation where there are women coming out and saying, you know, actually, I've had experiences like this and I didn't feel like I could speak up. Um, I was too scared to say anything. In the broader culture. In the broader culture. And I think that one of the questions is always like, why don't women, you know, why don't more women step forward and why don't women say things uh, when it happens? You know, part of this is power dynamics that when, you know, sometimes, especially if, if it's a man or you know, woman in a position of power, that can make people even more reluctant to come forward and make claims. Um, they just feel like they're powerless. You know, Rachel Crooks and her boyfriend, the night that she said Trump had kissed her, you know, when she went home to him, they actually had a conversation. You know, her boyfriend said, yeah, we actually talked about this. We sat down and we said, you know, what can we do? What, you know, how can you respond? And that they were just left feeling powerless, that the sense was like, she's 22. She's a receptionist. This is her first job out of college. And he's he's famous. He's powerful. He's Donald Trump. Like, there's nothing we can do. And you described that scene and quoted her boyfriend in the story saying that. And and likewise, in the story, we explored the complexity of what happened with Jessica Leeds on that plane. Because from a contemporary standpoint, from 2016, if someone tells you that a man on a plane has touched them, you would have a certain expectations of how they might respond. It's really powerful to hear Jessica Leeds talk about the culture of that time the 70s and the 80s when she was traveling as a businesswoman and the way she says that women of her generation felt after interactions like the one she said happened with Donald Trump. Culture had instilled in us that somehow it was our fault, the attention that we received from men, that we were responsible for their behavior towards us. During the late 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, if something happened to you, you just bucked up and you went on. You didn't complain to the authorities. You didn't complain to your boss. You just literally felt that it was your responsibility not to incur that kind of behavior. So after we write a story like this, a sensitive story, a complicated story, one that has got a lot of people thinking and talking about this subject, what do we do next as a news organization? And and what do we do next, you and I? Well, I think that this story is going to continue to be newsworthy, you know, especially once Trump, once he was captured on, on tape making these comments about kissing and groping women. And then when he was asked about it at the debate and sort of you know, made a categorical claim that he has not done this behavior, that he is, this is not something that he's actually done in real life, that it really you know, raise the sort of public service question of, is he telling the truth? Is this candidate for president telling the truth about his behavior? And there are now a growing number of women who have shared stories um, and allegations that contradict that. And I think we'll be continuing to sort of sort through and report out other stories, other claims that come our way. And we are, you know, we are grateful for people who are courageous enough to contact us. And we want to hear from any anybody and everybody who has a story to share. Um, Trump supporters, Trump critics, people who have had encounters with him, good or bad. We are eager to talk to you. Right. And our emails are on our Twitter accounts. And our emails are on our Twitter accounts. But use them judiciously. Please. Or not. <laughs> Megan, thank you for being here. Oh, happy to be here, Michael.
Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So what happens next in these final crazy weeks? What does Trump do to recover? How does Hillary respond to him? And how does she handle her own October surprise, that release of thousands of campaign emails day after day, and the threat of more? I'm joined by phone by Mark Leibovich in Washington. He's the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. Great to be with you, Michael. I want to talk to you about the response to the Times reporting about two women recounting their tales of being inappropriately touched in their words by Donald Trump. And let's start with what Trump is saying. He's called it a quote, total fabrication. And he is kind of leaning essentially back on his defense of the video, which is that it was just words. Right. Do you think that's going to succeed as an explanation? Well, you know, he, um, he, he is always, his MO has always been, if not to muddle the story, to certainly amplify it to a point where nuance and um, critical thinking about what is justified and what is not gets very much lost in a very intense back and forth. And, and if you listen to his speech in Ocala, Florida, I think it was, you know, he's on a big jihad against the press, namely you know, the New York Times, no one more so than us right now. The claims are preposterous, ludicrous, and defy truth, common sense, and logic. These lies come from outlets whose past stories and past claims have already been discredited. Six months ago, the failing New York Times wrote a massive story attacking me. The story was a fraud and a big embarrassment to the New York Times. And it was a big front page story. Front page, center, color picture, a disgrace. They were very embarrassed. It will be part of the lawsuit we are preparing against them. So there, there is this ongoing strain that there is this collusion taking place between the press, the Clinton campaign, establishment, Republicans, uh, debate, you know, organizers, wh- what have you. I mean, it's, we're sort of a central piece of the, the us against the world 
narrative that, that he has arrived at in these final weeks. As best I can tell, he's getting it from both sides. You had Newt Gingrich, who, by the way, when he came on his first episode, the first episode of our show, was one of Trump's most prominent Republican supporters. But even then, his support was kind of less than stellar. Does he have the mental fitness, the kind of psychological suitability to the office of the presidency? Um, yeah, my, and my answer would be sure. Sure? Sure. I mean, he, he is at least as reliable as Andrew Jackson. Now Gingrich is going a lot further. Here's how he put it on Thursday in a television interview. First of all, let me just say about Trump, who I, I admire and, and I try to help as much as I can. There's, there's a big Trump and a little Trump. The little Trump is frankly pathetic. So, Mark, that leaves who exactly kind of in his corner? I guess Christie and Giuliani. And how important is it that he's lost a couple dozen major supporters in the ranks of, of kind of congressional, you know, big league Republican world? Right. I mean, first of all, it's worth pointing out that these supporters that he lost were pretty reluctant to begin with. It's not like they were doing really any surrogate work or defending of him at all. I mean, as Trump himself complained, they were staying off the shows. They didn't have his back. Certainly Giuliani is, is now first among equals in the um, the foxhole camp. Among, so, so to speak, oh, yeah. So to speak, correct. Uh, Christie, you know, it's a little muddled at this point. I mean, Christie is, I, we haven't seen much from him. He's he was pretty condemning of um, the 2005 tape, and you know he, he wasn't at the debate the other night. So, I mean, for someone who was so visible and so available earlier in the campaign, I found Christie's you know relative absence and silence lately fairly conspicuous. So, and then obviously beyond um, beyond Giuliani, I mean, you have his family, his team of surrogates, um, you know, some of his staff like Kellyanne Conway. It's a pretty small defense corps at this point. So our colleague Nikor Sanidi was at a Trump rally on Thursday, and he, he asked supporters of Donald Trump if the stories of the women that the Times and a few other news organizations have been writing about would have any kind of impact. And almost uniformly, they said no. And in fact, one of them even said, you know, Donald Trump is a pig, but he will redeem the country. Which was He's a, our pig. It was a remarkable quote. He's our saving pig. You know, you could go to any Trump rally at any point in the last 10, 11 months and probably find a similar sense of devotion. There is a great deal of loyalty to him, whether it's blind loyalty or what, but he can certainly, in the eyes of his hardest core supporters, do no wrong. So it doesn't surprise me at all. So on the Democratic side, meanwhile, the Clinton campaign is bringing out what our colleague Amy Chozik has called their secret weapon, Michelle Obama. And on Thursday, she addressed... Trump's comments like this. It now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this and I feel it so personally. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel. It's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts. It, it, it hurts. And if you listen to that, Mark, there was kind of this quaver in her voice. And what, what she sh- when she said it, it kind of felt like it had shaken Michelle Obama to the core. And she told the crowd that if they didn't vote for Hillary 
or if they abstained from voting at all, they were essentially condoning Donald Trump's, the alleged type of behavior, and what, of course, he's said on videotape. Is that the kind of official line from the Clinton campaign? I don't know if it's the official line, but it's certainly a weapon they are using. I mean, I think, you know, Michelle Obama in her speech certainly sounded sincere. She is, is a woman. She's a mom. She's also, you know, arguably the most popular surrogate Hillary Clinton can trot out at this point. And, and also, I mean, if Trump were to retaliate, I mean, you, you have, I mean, it's a pretty risky move to actually go after Michelle Obama. I mean, it's as close as we have to a sacred cow in national politics these days. And in fact, I think Eric Schultz, the White House spokesman, said today, you know, in a gaggle, a press gaggle, said something to the effect of, he better not come after the first lady because it will affect his popularity downward even more. So, Is that a reasonable yeah. request for the White House to make, by the way? <laughs> I didn't see it as a request as much as I saw it as a taunt. There, there was an element of baiting to this that I think was, I don't think there was a genuine, you know, we must leave the first lady alone. I mean, I think it was strategic. So speaking of the targets of Donald Trump, he's pledged in the past couple of days to, quote, turn Bill Clinton into Bill Cosby. And the subtext, of course, being that he wants to kind of take this once beloved figure and, and recast him as a sexual predator. From, from what you've seen firsthand, How would the Clinton campaign and the kind of larger Clinton orbit handle a sustained campaign of that kind? I mean, it depends on what they have and what they're willing to say. I mean, bringing out the the sort of past accusers from really the 90s and before to the debate the other night was, you know, whether it was effective or not. I mean, that, that was sort of all in the public record. I mean, if they have access to people who have stories, particularly more recent stories, it could be an issue, but ultimately, from the start, I mean, Bill Clinton isn't running. You can say she, you know, Hillary Clinton is an enabler, but you can say so was was Melania Trump an enabler when you were, you know, allegedly groping these women and, and, and so forth. So there's been no indication in this race that, that going after Bill Clinton himself has been effective. You know, I have no idea. I don't. I suspect that his uh, gamut the other night wasn't all that effective. But, you know, if he has anything more recent and more troubling, I assume he'll use it and we'll see how they react. So you've been so, so steeped in the Clinton world for this piece that you just had published. And I want you to give us a feel for what the strategy looks like in the last couple of weeks and to what extent it may be affected by the developments that we just talked about. Well, I, I mean, I do think her objective, at least over the last several weeks, as I was reporting this story that's going to be um, in the magazine this Sunday, is was just to try to, if not stay above the fray, at least not allow herself to be lowered to the level that the campaign is going. I mean, she, I think, has found a kind of comfort in the, the ability to be boring or relatively boring, to be somewhat overshadowed by Trump and, and that Trump has taken up so much oxygen from really from the outside of this campaign. I mean, win or lose, I mean, this will be remembered as a Trump campaign as far as um, so you know, right. the person who was in the middle of everything. I mean, you know, can you really call someone solipsistic if, if the world really does revolve around him, which it seems to have in, in this campaign? So, I mean, I, I said in the story that, that this is somewhat risky in that, you know, it's a little risky in this day and age to be relatively boring, to be relatively uninteresting, which she is certainly compared to Trump. But she's banking on the fact that that's not her. And and also, in the end, voters will choose a more stable and predictable model. So it's October, which is supposed to be the surprise month in campaigns. And I want to talk about Hillary Clinton's October surprise, which were these leaked emails. 
Can you explain in a capsule what this is really all about? Well, I mean, you know, the WikiLeaks, you know, for many people think it came from Russia, which you know, a lot of people think is in cahoots with the, um, with the Trump campaign. So that itself is a source of intrigue. But these documents dumped, you know, in the WikiLeaks thing are of John Podesta, the campaign chairman's private Gmail account uh, that come out in batches pretty much every day for the last several days. Um, and they reveal the, the inner workings of a very calculated, very control freakish campaign, which is exactly how you would expect the Clinton campaign to be and, and certainly the candidate herself to be. For Trump, it's a bit of a godsend in that it reveals for everyone just how much of a politician this person is, how, you know, she literally on one hand talks about being a public person versus a private person. I mean, this fits perfectly into his narrative of him being different, him being a straight shooter, she being all that is wrong, all that is calculated, all that is sort of part of the rigged system that he is running about. So, you know, the sausage making of, of how a campaign runs can be very, very unpleasant and also pretty revealing to the outsiders if you, if you get the chance to see it. Now, I speak from some personal experience here because I had an email exchange with Jennifer Palmieri. This is my um, this is my own WikiLeaks cameo, which has gotten me blowing up Twitter and, and so forth. But I did a story on Hillary Clinton in July of 2015, and uh, after a lot of back and forth, they would only agree to an interview between me and the candidate off the record, which we resisted very much at first. We we begged them to reconsider. And finally, I took this as an opportunity to have a conversation with her and hopefully convince her and her campaign after the fact to let me you know, put some of it on the record, which is we all do. Ideally, not a lot, but, but we have to sometimes. And um, as it turned out, I, there was a whole batch of stuff that I wanted the option to use, and I sent it to Jennifer Palmieri. But, but anyway, he, apparently one of the people who, who she deliberated over what uh, to put on the record was with, with John Podesta. So, and by the way, Donald Trump goes off the record all the time. I mean, I spent you know a fair amount of time with Trump the next month, and he he went off the record, on the record. And I, after the fact, would have been very, very comfortable asking him, hey, you remember you told me that thing off the record? Can I put that on the record? And, you know, it's his prerogative to veto that. So, you know, that's a sort of insider baseball journalism political um, maneuver. But, you know, in the clear light of WikiLeaks, it looks like a negotiation. It looks like a collusion. So, yeah, it's been kind of one of those Twitter stories. And, you know, obviously, nuance is, is one of the many casualties of this campaign. So the emails that we saw from John Podesta's account, as you said, they reveal this incredibly cautious group of people who are like fretting endlessly over, even how to tell a joke. But of course, you spent real time with Hillary Clinton and, and knowing just how careful her, her orbit is. I wonder when you spend time with her one on one, like, do you get humanity? Can you extract that from her? What does that look like? Yes. No. I mean, she's, I mean, one of the, it's almost a cliche at this point, but I mean, Hillary Clinton is incredibly thoughtful in small groups and one-on-one -on -one settings. Now, you can be cynical about this and say that people pay a lot of money to have access to that Hillary Clinton in, in small group and one-on-one -on -one settings. And, um, you know, all I had to pay for at least last summer was um, annoyance and a little bit of dignity. But no, she's, she's very good. I mean, she, she's capable of a very nuanced thought of great humor. Um, she's a much better conversationalist and listener, frankly, I mean, as, as part of that cliche, uh, much more so than she is a speech giver. She doesn't do big soaring messages. She's not her husband. She's not Barack Obama. And she 
talked a lot about how it's important for a leader to be a storyteller, and she thinks that it'll be easier for her to do that in the White House than in this campaign, which is exactly the opposite of everything I'd always heard. I mean, you'd heard, you'd hear the Obama people in the first term saying, wow, it was so much easier to tell our story in the campaign because now we're just at the mercy of events and it's always incoming. And But I guess she takes a sort of opposite approach, which I think will make for a kind of interesting contrast if she's lucky enough to win. Before you go, I want to tell the Clementine story, which I find kind of hilarious because it's a perfect example of the kind of confusion there seems to be today about what's private and what's just a joke in this election. So can you tell it? Um, There was this um, near international incident on the press plane after a long day of campaigning, you know, I guess early September sometime. And um, at one point, a couple of the young campaign embeds started playing the old game where you sort of roll an orange up the aisle and try to reach the compartment up in the front of the plane where the candidate is sitting. And so and sometimes you write a little question on the orange and and sometimes the candidate will favor you with an answer on the orange, and that's a little game. It sort of gives you a little window into um, how stingy the access is and how and the many indignities that people in the back of the press plane get. So they started throwing around this orange, and it was actually a clementine because they didn't have an orange and because clementines are taking over the world. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, they were throwing them around, and at one point one of them just, like, exploded right in front of me, and, like, you know, my laptop is still sticky to this day over this. Finally, someone, I forget who it was, reached the front of the plane. And and so they asked the question, who would you rather have dinner with, Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump? And the Clementine came back with Vladimir Putin's name circled. So, you know, we had breaking news all of a sudden. And a couple of the embeds and the young reporters were uh, tweeting about this from the plane. And uh, then a couple of the press people came back and they said, well, wait, that, that was off the record. And so then there was this back and forth about whether, you know, a citrus is on the record or off the record and whether this was privileged or not. And at one point, Nick Merrill, who was slightly more senior than the other press person, came back and said, so I was just back here a few minutes ago and we were all just throwing an orange around, but now everything is really tense. Finally, Nick revealed that he actually intercepted the Clementine before it got to Secretary Clinton. She said out loud that she had actually in the past dined with Vladimir Putin. So he circled Putin. He rolled it back. You know, so that's how that impression was created. People then tweeted out the clarification um, that it was not Clinton herself expressing a preference. And um, things calmed down and the republic somehow survived. I mean, it's like it's like a gorgeous but also awful metaphor for the Clinton campaign. <laughs> it is, isn't it? For the record, I won the contest in 2012 by rolling a piece of fruit with incredible force and aim up really? to Mitt Romney's section, really? section of the plan. Was it a grapefruit? Was it an orange? Remember what the specific fruit was? That's off the record. Okay. On that note, Mark Leibovich, thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michael. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. I'll see you back here on Tuesday if I'm not in jail. There's danger out there. Every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while sharks might be scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.